Welcome. Welcome back to RUF. It's good to see y'all. Uh, just so you know, this is the second to last RUF of the semester. That's crazy. Um, we're not having RUF next week, uh, next Tuesday night, because of the Thanksgiving break. Uh, so if you come to Genome 200 or Gene Home 100, you'll be here by yourself, so don't do that. Uh, <laughs> I think there's something really appropriate about uh, having me gun in this room uh, in this building this year and then kind of finishing out here as well. I like that a lot. Um, great. Jordan, how's uh, ECU Duke game? What are we talking here? Did you look that up? Check that real quick. I'll me in a minute. <laughs> they were tied a few minutes ago. Um, uh, <laughs> the Pirates will get them next time. Um, so this semester, we've talked a lot about how God has wrapped his life around our stories, around the glory and the pain, the sorrow, even the joy of what it is to be a person, even experiencing death with us and for us, is what we talked about last week. We've also asked ourselves, if God has wrapped his life around my story, what does it mean that I wrap my life around his story? And here we are, Mark 16, the very end of Mark's gospel, and we're asking ourselves, okay, If resurrection and not death are the final parts of God's story, then logically, if I were to wrap my life around Him, then hope in His resurrection has to be a big part of my life too, right? We want to take into account the evil of the world, the brokenness of the world, sure. But the understanding that evil has not and will not win the war. Absolutely. Battles, yes. Tears, yes. Friends, gone, yes, those will ring hollow compared to the great victory that our Lord accomplishes, and the resurrection is kind of the foretaste of that. There's a woman named Joni Erickson Tata who's, she's really remarkable. She's just proven herself time and time again to be one of those incredible people. She's written over 30 books. She's been married for a few decades. She started a ministry where prisoners make wheelchairs for the disabled. She survived breast cancer. She's a painter. But she's also, and this may be the most incredible thing about her, been a quadriplegic for the last 40 years. Um, she was, when she was 18, she jumped into a shallow piece of water and hit her head and broke her neck. And since then, she hasn't been able to move anything below her neck. But a few years ago, she was being interviewed by Larry King. And he asked her, like, Jody, what do you like to do for fun? I mean, I know that to be a quadriplegic limits you. What do you do for fun? And she said... Well, before my accident, I was a very active person. I hiked and camped and I rode horseback. And whenever I see horses and people doing a horseback lesson, I like to stop. I just want to watch. And I'm encouraged to know that one day I'm going to ride again. So I come and I watch just to make certain that I don't forget how to ride. Now, this is a woman who's been paralyzed for nearly 40 years But the certainty that she has that one day she will ride a horse is totally crazy if there is no resurrection. But if there is a resurrection, then it's totally reasonable. The trouble is this, like the first disciples, we don't really know what to do with the resurrection. Uh, We have a place mentally for a guy dying on a cross. You know, you don't encounter that every day, but I have categories for that. That could happen. However, when it comes down to having a place for that same guy being not mostly dead or halfway dead, uh, but totally dead, 
and then coming back to life in such a way that death has no power over him, we, you don't really get it, do you? That's when it starts to sound a little bit like a legend or a fairy tale or maybe even a myth that people help uh, tell themselves to help make themselves feel better about how hard life is. That's when we start to get cynical and tell yourself that the best thing to do is to accept how hard life is, how dark it is, to move on, to do whatever you can with the rest of your time you've got. And people will tell you that at least then you'd be living honestly. But here's the thing. If the resurrection really happened, if it's a historical event like your birthday or the Emancipation Proclamation or the fact that we're all sitting here tonight in this room, then there really isn't room in your life for cynicism or just throwing your hands up and trying to make the best you can with the rest of your time on earth. That if the resurrection is a real event, then there is joy, deep and abiding joy, and the certainty that even when the weak and the voiceless and the innocent are crushed, that we serve a God who makes all things right. So for 2,000 years, Christians have said that if you want to live honestly, live in light of the resurrection. So tonight we're going to talk about three things, and they're not all three A words or S words, or they don't rhyme. I could, not, every, not every sermon works that way, I'm sorry. But <laughs> we're going to talk about this. The resurrection is the vindication of Jesus, it's the shape of salvation, and it's the hope of God's people. It's vindication of Jesus, shape of salvation, the hope of God's people. So if you would, read with me Mark 16, 1 through 8. And this comes right after the crucifixion. Uh, Jesus, because he dies on a Friday and the next day in the Jewish calendar is a Sabbath, they don't do anything with his body to prepare it. So he's been in the ground for a few days and these women are coming back. They expect him to be there. This is what they find. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to, another, to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let me pray for us. Father, we need um, the resurrection of your son Jesus as much as we need his death for us on the cross. And Lord, I pray that you would be here tonight you make that clear to us? Lord, I know that it can be hard for us at times to consider the fact that there is a man who has been raised from the dead and that he is at work in the world and he has not forgotten about us, but he's at work in our lives as well. And so, Lord, I pray that you would bring him here to us tonight. We would know him in his power, in his presence, in his great love for sinners like us. Lord, that we would be moved to know him and to rejoice in his resurrection. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You know, a lot has been made of the friendship between the two famous writers, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Both were some of the most incredible literary minds of their day. They had 
between them written some of the most popular works of fiction in the last hundred years. You've got The Lord of the Rings, you've got The Chronicles of Narnia, as well as some really other insightful looks into, into the human heart and Christian apologetics and stories and folklore and fairy tale. And what some people don't know, though, is that Tolkien played like a super important part in Lewis becoming like this huge Christian. Originally, Lewis was an atheist, but he and Tolkien both loved myths, and they loved medieval romance tales about chivalry and people triumphing in the face of darkness. And they basically were just friends who hung out and geeked out about like old medieval stories and fairy tales and things like that. They're just two, two British geeks who liked each other. And uh, <laughs> I know, <laughs> peel back the layers of history to see what really is there. Uh, the story goes that one day uh, they were at night, or one night they were out, they'd been to the pub where they like to go, they were smoking a pipe, they were strolling, they were talking as they want to do, and the subject of what they were talking about were myths and Christianity. And Lewis, as the atheist, is struggling with the story of, of Jesus rising from the dead. It just seemed too good to be true. And he seemed like, as a student of myth, he'd already heard a ton of myths about the God who dies for people. And Lewis said to Tolkien, he said, well, how come Christians aren't like the Egyptians or the Romans or the Norse peoples. How do I know that these aren't, these gospels' tales are not just lies breathed through silver? Wonderful, beautiful, heartbreaking stories, but myths. Things that give people hope, but are anything more than stories that people tell. Lies breathed through silver. And that's a fair question to ask. I don't think it's one that you can ignore what makes us think that Jesus rising from the dead in triumph over death isn't any more than one more lie breathed through silver? This is history that happened 2,000 years ago, right? It's not like we have a video evidence of it. So where do we start? I think the first place to start is right here in this text itself. What do I mean by that? Look at the first witnesses to the resurrection. Who are, who are the people that go to the tomb to find Jesus? It's women. Uh, and this is certainly not my view, but... If you were to go 2,000 years in the past, then women aren't credible witnesses for anything that's true. Their testimony wasn't admissible in court. If you're living in the ancient world and you're trying to make up a plausible story about, okay, there's a guy that's risen from the dead. No one in the ancient world thought that someone was going to rise from the dead. If I were going to make that up 2,000 years ago and I want it to be widely accepted, then who do you make the first person to find that guy? It's not someone whose testimony isn't admissible in court. I would pick somebody like a Pontius Pilate or a Herod. I'd pick a king or a priest, right? Like a man who with lots of power and authority. I wouldn't pick someone whose testimony is not admissible in court. Why not change the story? Because they were very, very concerned with getting as many eyewitness details as possible. And the people who see the empty tomb first is a big detail. So you keep... Telling that story. You keep your concern with that truth instead of making a myth. So you have the women there. And just on a side note, God honors the women there. That they would be the ones who find his son. God cares about women in that. Secondly, okay, if the women are there and their testimony is admissible in court, where are the men? If the witnesses with the least credibility are at the tomb, where are the witnesses that would have possibly the most credibility? They're hiding, they're afraid. The end of Mark's gospel is the most truncated, but the other gospel accounts have the disciples trembling behind locked doors. 
And all the, in all the gospel narratives, the apostles literally gave up and went home after the crucifixion. If you're trying to make up a story so that you can start a religion, you don't take the climax of that story, what everything in this book has been leading up to, and say, well, we didn't get it, and we abandoned ship, and we were literally just going to go back and be fishermen. That's not what, you're in, what you do if you're interested in starting a cult. That's not what you do if you want to get money or power out of people. But that is what you do if the most incredible thing in history has happened, and you want everybody to know about it, and you don't care if you look like a fool or a coward in the process. You know, there's more that we can talk about here, but finally, where is Jesus here? Where is Jesus, right? A lot of people have tried to say that the resurrection has come from the disciples feeling maybe super sad and then having a sort of inner illumination of he's gone, but he lives in our hearts and he's with us still. The problem with that is if you want to take the Gospels seriously or any of the eyewitness accounts seriously, then he's not in the tomb. Like his body, he's not just gone, but his body is gone. He really died, and the way that Mark tells it is he's really alive, and he's up and moving about. The angel says, hey, he's going to find you in Galilee. He's not here. He's not dead. He's out there in the world. This is the only time in, this, in the gospel when he's not present in the story. And Mark is doing a great job here as a storyteller, giving us a sense of what it must have been like to come to the tomb expecting to take care of your friend who's died, to prepare his body, and to find it empty instead. The women are terrified. They're scared. What is this? What does it mean? If the resurrection was really about inner illumination, then where is the illumination? Where is the, hmm, that feels so good. He's with us still. It's just not there. But this and the other gospels show us that Jesus is definitely physical. He's been transformed. He, in other gospels, eats fish and bread. He's mistaken as a gardener or a traveler on the road. This is not about spiritual illumination. It's about a real historical vindication of God's chosen one. All right, so try to imagine what it must have been like for Jesus' followers here. They've traveled around him for several years. He's preached like no one's ever preached. He's performed incredible acts of power. And at the same time, he's also the humblest person you ever met. As far as they can tell, he's completely without sin. Crazy stuff. And yet, along the way, he's told them, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed by authorities and they don't believe him. And they promise him, you know, you're not going to go die, but even if you were going to go die, we would be with you. Imagine the guilt they must feel. That this was their friend in his hour of need, and they ran. And he said he was going to go do this thing, and we were going to stop him, and he, he managed to do it anyway. That's incredibly painful. It looks like he just got run over by the Roman Empire. So put yourself in their shoes. We thought he was the hope of Israel, but that hope gets nailed to a cross. And when that sort of thing happens, people don't go out and found a religion around that. They go home, they try to go back to their day jobs, and they just try to live out the best life they can. However, if God raises up the one person who you could never say deserved tragedy, and who went to the de his death in order to save people, and who represents you before God if you ask him to, then that story looks totally different, doesn't it? It's a story of hope rather than failure. It's the promise that life and the wholehearted living with friends and family and a world that's restored is the ultimate end of things and not death. You know, when C.S. Lewis was an atheist struggling with Christianity, wondering if it wasn't all just some lie told through silver, something that was beautiful and we wanted 
to believe, but that when you came right down to it, it was not really real. It was just something that people hid behind. He says in his spiritual biography that he and Tolkien were out that one night, and he was asking, are these not lies breathed through silver? And Tolkien grabbed him by the arm, and he asked him, what if God has told a true story? What if the desires that all these myths have pointed to, all these stories that we love about heroes who die for their friends, or gods that die for their people, what if those desires pointed to something real that God was giving us? A real historical resurrection. What ought that to mean for our lives? What if God has entered our history, this history, and he's telling a true story that is not sad? First of all, it changed the shape of our salvation. The resurrection is why Christians can say that their hope is in God and mean it, right? Christ's life forms the shape of the Christian life. So if you put on his life, you can't help but have a life that's marked by self-giving love, by sacrificial love that empties itself of power and privilege to serve people who are weaker than you, people who are on the fringe, people who are even your enemies, that you are called to love with everything you've got because God has loved you with everything that he has. He's loved you, he's bought you at the price of his own blood. Now love others in the same way. And if that sounds costly, then it is. But the Christian hope has always been that if I have shared in a life like his, then I'll be raised up with him as well. That God's power to bring life out of death is our hope. So when you read about the resurrection, it is as though God is saying, from now on, all of my people will be shaped by the cross of my son and by the resurrection of my son. That this is the way that I will save my people. Do not put your trust in money to save you. Don't put your trust in technology so our iPhones could save us. But put your trust in me. That our God is the only God that brings this sort of life out of a crucified death. A real, bone-crushing, heartbreaking death in the world. And then he gives you his life as a free gift. That is the shape of our salvation. So let's end with hope. If the resurrection is a real historical event, then what do we do with it? What do we do with it? We're called to live out the hope of the reality that God's life and God's justice, rather than death and injustice, have the final say. The biblical writers, reflecting on Jesus' death and resurrection, use kind of a farming analogy about crops coming in. They said, you know, if you want to think about what it's like that he has risen again from the dead, think about it like this. That he's really the first fruits of what's to come. He's the first kind of inbreaking of spring after a harsh winter. That first sweet apple off that tree. He's the beginning of what the end will look like when God puts everything to rights. And if that's the case, if Jesus is the first fruits of this worldwide resurrection that Christians believe is coming in the future, then we're called to anticipate that resurrection now. If Jesus is the end of time in person, then those who belong to him are empowered by his spirit and are charged with transforming the present. As far as we're able, with sin and death still a reality in the world, in light of the future. What do I mean by that? I mean that we aren't living in a world where death and evil have the final say. Typhoons and tornadoes will not always ravage and destroy. But we as God's people are called to bring in the glory, the beauty, the wholeness of what's to come into this present reality. So love your neighbor out of the sense that sadness and anger and disunion are not the end result of what this world is about. Write a poem and make good art 
knowing that good art and poetry is what the world is moving towards. Bring in that future glory with all you can. I read an article recently where the, this author was talking about the cultural phenomenon of zombies and movies and television stories about zombies. And I'm not knocking zombies. I love zombie movies and stuff like that. Uh, but he noted that in those worlds, that when the dead rise, they rise up and they always win at the cost of the living. They always just eat their way through people and through the world. That those stories are just this big fire hydrant of death will win. You cannot win. But the author ended by making the point that if the resurrection has happened, then we aren't living in a world where death wins. And so we don't have to be nihilist. That we're living in a world where when the dead rise, it will be to life. And so we're able to look at ourselves and the world and say, and deep down in our bones mean it. I know this is broken but it will not always be this way. And you will say that to yourself as you wrestle with sin and that felt sense that, you know, I just keep making the same mistakes. I don't even know what they are, but it feels like about every few weeks I say something that just wrecks my life and just pushes people away. I don't know what exactly that is, but it feels like a freight train hits me from the side every few weeks. I am broken, but it will not always be this way. Or you and your longing for a deep connection with other people and for that sense of being clean. You pray to God, Lord, I know that you say that I am your child and that through your son I have no sin in your eyes. But when will I feel that way? When will I stop feeling so guilty? How long, O oh Lord? And you can look at yourself in the world and say, I know this is broken, but it will not always be this way. You know, in this room, I hope that we are developing friendships that would literally last the rest of your life. Or that some of you maybe would even date and get married and be married for the rest of your life. It's a fun part about college ministry, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> but, um, but if you think about how hard life can be, about where it takes us sometimes, it can be so hard. And the resurrection means that at some point in the future that it would be well within the bounds of reality for you to be able to look over at someone who sits in this very room that you've known since you were 20 years old and say, do you remember when I got that diagnosis and you were with me as I got chemotherapy and all my hair fell out and we watched as I stopped eating and you could see the bones underneath my skin and we both cried as you held my hand and I passed away on that little rectangle bed in that hospital room. And that person next to you that you've known forever could look over you and say, yeah, yeah, I do. And you could look back at that person and say, because of God's work, I will never hurt again. And you will never hurt again. And death is not the final say in my life. And you do not have to wait for another shoe to drop, another bad thing to happen. There are no more shoes to drop. There is no more sadness or pain or death because of what he has done. But that's our hope as Christians. That's our hope in people who believe in the resurrection. I'll end with this. Uh, the theologian N.T. Wright uh, makes a really helpful illustration when he talks about the resurrection. He says, What if somewhere, somehow, you found it would have been this lost, but really great, like truly great piece of artwork 
from the Renaissance. Like something so beautiful, so grand, that it perfectly describes both the heights of your life and the depths of your life. The things that are so beautiful and wonderful you can't hardly name. The things that are so terrible it hurts to look at them. But if you have this incredible piece of artwork, and when all the media fanfare died down and all these art historians had gotten done checking it out, that you decide, you know what, I've got this artwork, I'm not going to sell it, I need to put it up in my house somewhere. And so you look around and you're like, the kitchen is too small, or if you're in your dorm room, you're like, there's another bed on the side of that room, like, we got to get rid of that. Uh, you're looking around and there's just nowhere to put it. What do you do with that, that piece of artwork? And T. Wright says this, the logical thing to do would be to take your house and look at it over here and then take that artwork and look over here and then bulldoze your house and make a house that's fit for that artwork. That where there's this kitchen that was too small, there's this huge marble facade with a fountain that welcomes people in and then there's this curtain, like this big velvet curtain and there's some chairs over here and you can just pull that curtain back and people can look at the artwork and be like, whoa, that's incredible. That's the logical thing to do with your life. If this is true, if this is real, what God has given you is better than a piece of art. He has given you himself and his life. And this semester we've been asking ourselves, who is Jesus and what does he call us to do? And I don't ever assume that any of us are on the same page spiritually, but let me suggest this. That if Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection are real, if the Bible is right about these events, then you can't do nothing. That something in your house has to change. God's love for you has to change you. If you don't have to live in fear of death, then now what? And if the same power is at work in the resurrection, is at work in your life, then what will you do? If that power is at work in your life, then you can't do nothing. Then you can be an immense force for good. So what's stopping you? Bring the hope of the resurrection into your life. Bring the peace and the life of God that he offers to other people. Tell this story to people who don't know it. Tell it to yourself when you feel the darkness of the world closing in. The power of the gospel is that it does not end with death, that it ends with life. And God welcomes you into that life. For now and forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we aren't alone in this life. That you're with us to the hard things of life, but God, that you also welcome us in to the beauty and the glory of what's to come. And Lord, I pray that you would set us free to follow your Son, Jesus. Lord, that he would be at work in our hearts, that he would be at work in our lives. God, that we would serve people out of his love. Lord, that we would look at the darkness and mourn it where we need to mourn it and laugh at it where we need to laugh at it. God, because your light is breaking into this world. And Lord, I pray that you would make that more real for us tonight. I pray that you would help us to live out of your resurrection tonight. In your sins, we pray. Amen.